0: we are concluding a study that we began 3 weeks ago, 3 Fridays ago, looking at 2 Corinthians 13:14 and the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And as I mentioned to you 2 weeks ago as we began this study of the Trinity, that it was not simply my goal to fill your head with theological ideas and truths and terms so that you could walk away a little bit smarter. That is one of the goals. But that goal had a goal. And that goal was that by knowing Christ more, by studying the theology, the nature of God, that you would be led to worship. Here's a phrase with some big terms in it. All theological reflection should be doxological in ambition. What does that mean? It means when we study who God is... Our goal should be to worship. Our goal should be to know more of who he is so that we could better respond to him with the passion of our heart according to his truth. So along the way, as we've been talking through this verse and talking through the doctrine of the Trinity, I've tried to remind you and encourage you towards different resources that you can go and study this more if you would like to. We looked at the uh, Nicene Creed, some of the early church creeds, Uh, So you can look at the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, these writings from the very beginnings of the church where they settled what Christians ought to believe. Those can be very helpful for us in knowing what we ought to believe. We also looked at some more recent creeds, or we call them statements of faith now, the Gospel Coalition Statement, a confessional statement, you can find on their website, and then our own Redeemer Statement of Faith, And I want to encourage you, if you have never read our Statement of Faith as a church, or um, if you're a member and you read it at one point, maybe during the membership class, uh, and then haven't really looked at it since then, I want to encourage all of you to read the Statement of Faith. It's not that long. It'll just take you a couple of minutes. And knowing what we believe and teach as a church will be so helpful to you as you come in and worship with us each week. I also mentioned the New City Catechism. The catechism is not just something that the Catholic Church does. A catechism is simply a Q&A format method of teaching theology. And the New City Catechism is a good gospel-centered curriculum. It's available freely online if you Google New City Catechism. And I want to encourage, especially you parents of children, um, teach your children. And this is a great tool for that. The New City Catechism has a version that's just for kids. And that would be a great way to teach theology to your children. We also have the resource table there at the back, some recommended books in your bulletin. That resource table is available every Friday. And those are theologically rooted books that are trying to help you apply the gospel in different areas of your life. So go ahead, pick up a book, renew your mind, read, think theologically. And as you do, worship. Let's press our hearts towards worship as we know who our God is. And that's who we're here to talk about today, is our God. Specifically, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, as you notice there at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that the person of God as the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Let me read that verse to us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, again, this is a simple verse in some ways, as we've said, 23 words This is a benediction, it's a farewell from Paul. This is at the end of the letter. He's said what he wants to say, he's taught what he wants to taught, he's encouraged and instructed in the way that he wants to, and now he's signing off with just a reminder to them of who the God is that they serve. And in doing so, he gives us the most succinct summary of the nature of God, and that is God's triunity, our Trinitarian God. We spoke of the love of the Father. We spoke of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're coming to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, to think about the Holy Spirit. And I realized this morning that I'm speaking to a primarily Christian background group, although I'm sure some of you are from different backgrounds as well. And so for most of us, there's something that we know of about the Holy Spirit, I'm sure if we took a poll and asked about how the Holy Spirit was talked about or His work and His ministry understood in your various backgrounds, we would get a lot of different responses. And sometimes we don't really know how to talk about the Holy Spirit. It just kind of comes out in, in jokes that we tell. This last week as I was preparing for this sermon, and I was talking to more than one member made the same joke to me. They said, oh, you're talking about the Holy Spirit, so... You don't even need to prepare, right? Just let the Spirit lead. Well, yes, I, but I also did trust that the Spirit was leading in my preparation as much as He can do in the moment. The Holy Spirit can be a controversial topic. Some, And this is because some groups um, take the Holy Spirit and they go to what we would think of as extremes. Some Christian traditions, or so-called Christian traditions... They would articulate the life of of the Christian as about increasing experiences and receptivity to the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. That if we have not experienced miracles, tangible manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our life, then we should in some way doubt our Christian experience. They come to worship gatherings in these sort of traditions, and they're hoping for fire to fall from heaven as some songs say, or one mega ministry in the United States um, looks for gold dust to be falling from glory clouds that appear in their auditorium. They look for parades of, of miraculous healings, of ecstatic utterances like unintelligible languages and various other things. These are extreme versions of the Holy Spirit and what he is seen to do in Scripture. And what ends up happening is that there can be a danger in such groups of actually creating an idol. Because what's taking place is that the Holy Spirit is being formed into something to be worshiped that is actually detached from the other members of the Trinity, And so in claiming to worship the Holy Spirit, they're actually claiming, uh, they're actually worshiping an idol under his name, but no different than the deities of so many other religions that are simply magicians. These don't offer salvation, they offer entertainment. But there can be another extreme too. Some of us are from that extreme of, of making an idol of the Holy Spirit. Some of us are from the extreme of ignoring the Holy Spirit. We don't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is mysterious. He's weird. So we just kind of put a cover over him and we keep him in the storage. He doesn't make for orderly worship or, or a nice, neatly run Christian life. If you're around these kind of people, You worry about raising your hands in worship because maybe you'll be accused of being a charismatic. Well, neither of these are helpful because neither of these acknowledge that God is Holy Spirit. God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. And so we cannot ignore the Holy Spirit even as much as we cannot make an idol out of Him. So some of you might be on one of those extremes. Some of you might be somewhere nice, neatly in the middle. And here's something that I want to give all of you, whether wherever you are in that spectrum, I'm sure all of you will be very disappointed in what I say this morning. Because there is simply no way for me to cover everything that there is to be said about the Holy Spirit his person and his ministry and how it applies to your life and how it should look in our corporate gatherings there is so much that could be said so i hope you'll forgive me if i don't with nuance speak to your questions i would love to do that after the service or feel free to email me i know there's many questions on this topic but what we're going to do today is we're going to ask the question who is the holy spirit and then I want to look at two aspects about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I hope in doing that 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 gives you a bit of a foundation to begin to see what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit in his ministry? What does the Bible identify as the most tangible and important parts of who the Holy Spirit is in his ministry that from there we can discuss many other things? So first, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? I'm not sure how much this data holds up across the world, uh, but one study I read this last week was by an American research institution. They did a a poll, a survey of many thousands of people, um, but people who claim to be evangelicals, claim to be born again. And they asked these people about the Holy Spirit. 60%. 6-0. So a strong majority of so-called born-again people in the United States claim that the Holy Spirit is a force. A force. And if your mind went to Star Wars, it did the right thing. Because that is what is happening in Star Wars. The Jedi Masters are learning how to use the force. They're manipulating the physical universe. They're flying. They're grabbing a spoon from across the table so they don't have to ask for it to be passed. They're reading minds. They're using the force. Well, the scriptures are a better place to understand the Holy Spirit than Star Wars because the scriptures do not communicate the Holy Spirit as a force, as merely a power, something that's taking place, something that's happening. The scriptures refer to the Holy Spirit as a person. You can't relate to a force. You can relate to a person. And that is what the scripture calls us to. Discussing the spirit, this is Jesus. Jesus, when he says about the spirit, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus, speaking of the spirit, doesn't refer to it. It will come to you. It will declare things to you. He says he. He uses a singular masculine pronoun because the Spirit is a person and not an it. We see the Spirit operating as a person throughout Scripture. In Acts chapter 13, the Spirit speaks. And in John chapter 14, the Spirit teaches. In Acts chapter 8, the Spirit guides. In Acts chapter 10, the Spirit is obeyed. In Galatians 5, the Spirit is walked with. In Ephesians, the Spirit is grieved. He's a person. And like a person, he does person things. He speaks, he teaches, he guides, and he's treated like a person. He is obeyed, he's walked with, and he is grieved. He's a person. But he's not just any kind of person. The Spirit is a divine person. The Spirit is a divine person because the Spirit, along with God the Father and God the Son, is God. Now, I've put a number of verses in your bulletins to look at and reflect upon related to why we would think that the Holy Spirit is God and why the Scripture teaches that He is a divine being, one of the persons of the one true God. Again, we are not polytheists. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three persons, Holy Spirit being one of them. And we don't have time to look at all of those verses just right now, but in addition to 2 Corinthians 13, 14, what we're studying, there's also one place I would like us to think about, to this idea of the Holy Spirit being God. And this, unfortunately, is a negative example, but it shows very clearly the deity of the Holy Spirit in the early church by its, at its foundation. In Acts chapter 5, there's this story of something that happens in the early church there in Jerusalem. There's a couple. A man, his name is Ananias, and his wife is Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, they have a piece of property, and they want to sell the property. They they want to make good on their real estate investment. So they sell the property, and what they do is they come to Peter. They come to the church, and they make an offering to the church based on that sale, but what they present it as is that they have given everything from that sale to the church. Unfortunately, that's not what they did. They held back some of the amount for themselves, and so in their giving, they were actually lying. They were presenting an untruth to the church. Peter perceives their lie. We don't know how, but he, perhaps by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood and discerned what was happening and he says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, what is, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. The story continues, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He was dead. Now, what Ananias did in and of itself, was not a sin. The act of only giving a portion of what he had made from that sale. He did not have to give the entire amount. He chose to present it as if he was giving the entire amount, and therefore he lied And lying in itself is not actually a capital offense. It would not require death simply for telling a lie. Although it's breaking a commandment, it is not considered worthy of the death penalty. Why was Ananias killed? Because he lied to God. He lied to God. And lying to God is blasphemy. To lie to God is to make a claim about God that he is not one who insists on truth, So Ananias, in his deceit, in his presentation of a lie as an act of worship, was saying to God, God, I don't believe that you care about the truth. I don't believe that you actually care about what's happening in my inner being. He's calling God a liar in his lie, and that required his life. But interestingly, did you notice that Peter said who he lied to? He lied to the Holy Spirit. He lied to the Holy Spirit. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he concludes by saying, you have not lied to man, but to God. This is not two different lies. It's not a lie in two different directions. It's a lie in one direction. It's a lie against God, and specifically a lie against the Holy Spirit, who was given by Christ coming from the Father to lead the church in all truth. This is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit was there in the church to teach them, to teach them to obey all that God had commanded them. And Ananias was rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting him, rejecting his teaching and choosing to live according to lies. What this shows us is that the Holy Spirit was understood by the early church and experienced by the early church to be God. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. He is to be known, he is to be worshipped, and he is to be enjoyed as God. Now, in this topic of the Holy Spirit, for most of us, if you've been in the church for some time, you think of the Holy Spirit and you think of Pentecost. There's even denominations formed around that. The Pentecostal denomination, a group that is very excited about the Holy Spirit, takes their name from that event in the early part of Acts, where the Holy Spirit came down in tongues of fire on the apostles. And so then the question comes, was the Holy Spirit there in the Old Testament? Is the Holy Spirit just a a thing that happened? A thing that happened from God in the New Testament? No. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that the Spirit of God is eternal. So that alone tells us that the Spirit was there. He was there not just in the Old Testament, but before creation. The Spirit was there because He is God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And not only was he there before creation, but he was experienced by man in the same ways that he is now, very similarly, same activities in the Old Testament. Job, the, the earliest book written in the Old Testament, before even Genesis, in Job, Elihu says, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. This is one of the first people of faith, one of the first uh, uh, people in one of the first books written um, about God and his dealings with his people. And here we have the spirit at work, at work to give and to sustain life. We could look at the psalmist in Psalm chapter 139, and he says, where can I go from your spirit? The spirit is understood to have a constant presence with the believer. The psalmist says, I could ascend to the heavens, and he is there. I could go down to the depths, and he is there where can I go from your spirit? He's constantly with the person of faith. The prophets, they knew of the spirit's work in convicting of sin and to teaching in righteousness. Micah says in Micah chapter three, as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice in mind to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The prophets knew that it was the Spirit who was at work in them to give them words of truth to speak to the people. We can look at other places. Ezra and how the Spirit counsels and teaches. We can look at uh, the, the crafting of the tabernacle and how it said that the Spirit is what gives the, the artisans their ability to create the tabernacle according to God's will. We can look how the Spirit gives freedom from fear in the book of Haggai. These examples and more lead us to see that the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. But here is where we also learn something about the Holy Spirit's ministry. Because the degree to which he was a little bit in the, in the backstage of the Old Testament, he's not pushing himself forward in a spectacular display like on Pentecost, is because the Spirit's role is actually not to make much of himself. J.D. Greer, a pastor in the United States, has a book on the Holy Spirit. It's called Jesus Continued. Why the Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. It's a good book. I recommend it. And one thing he says in that book is, there is a certain irony in how the Spirit operates. Whenever He is really present, you're not thinking about Him. You're thinking about Christ. You see, that's what the Spirit wants to do. The Spirit wants to point us to Christ. He wants to get out of the spotlight, put the light on Christ, and so that we can know and see our Savior. So in the Old Testament, as promises are being made about the coming Messiah, and there's a mystery about who that will be and what that will look like, The Holy Spirit is is waiting. The Holy Spirit is working according to God's will, but the Holy Spirit is waiting for the Messiah to come and so that he can in fullness engage in the work that he is longing to do, which is to reveal the Savior. In John chapter three, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You remember this story? And Jesus speaks with Nicodemus this Jewish teacher, as if he understood the New Testament doctrine of the new birth. That we must be born again. That the Spirit must take us and make us to be born again spiritually. And that's because it's not a New Testament doctrine. That's because it's a biblical doctrine. That all people from all places in all times must be born again by faith because they are dead spiritually. Jesus says to Nicodemus, who is incredulous about this idea, he says, what are you talking about? A man has to go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Jesus is saying, if you would read the Old Testament, you should know that you you must be born of the Spirit. Jesus' perspective was that the Spirit was clear, was evident, and was active in the Old Testament. He's not a New Testament innovation. He was not created or manifested at Pentecost as if he never existed, but the Holy Spirit is eternal God and is active throughout redemptive history. Well, now we want to return to this phrase from our verse in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, as We conclude this series on this verse, we've looked at the love of the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, and now the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And commentators on this verse say that basically that this could be referring to two kinds of fellowship. We're not sure exactly which, and perhaps Paul just meant both of them. The two kinds of fellowship would be the fellowship that we experience with God by the Spirit So the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in the sense that he is communing with us and bringing us into fellowship with God. Or it could be referring to the fellowship that we experience with those who have also received the Spirit. So he could be saying the fellowship in the sense vertically and horizontally, if you want to think about it that way. It could be the fellowship with God and the fellowship with one another. It could mean both. Let's tackle both of them. Because I think in doing so, we see the Spirit's priorities and how He works. And so now I'm going to give us two banners under which the rest of our time will be spent. And they are going to be the most complicated sermon points you have ever heard in your life. Are you ready for this? Number one, you can have fellowship with the Father by the Spirit through Christ as sons. That's the first one. The second one, you can have fellowship with one another by the Spirit around Jesus as brothers. So I'll return to that one. Let's look at the first one. You can have fellowship with the Father by the Spirit through Jesus Christ as sons. And this is important because we often misunderstand our greatest need. And that's revealed in how we Think about the Holy Spirit and the the ministries that we're attracted to and the, the things that we want. We misunderstand our greatest need because our greatest need is not miraculous healing. It's not. Our greatest need is not miraculous healing. We don't need to experience that. I don't know what you're suffering with, but everything from a pimple to terminal cancer even whatever it is, it is not your greatest need to be healed from that. Now, we believe that the Lord can heal. I want to make that very clear. The Lord is the great physician. He is powerful and he is mighty and he is working miraculously and he is able to heal. That's why we pray for Anne-Marie. That's why we pray for Pastor Dave. That's why we pray for those who even have the worst health conditions that we've ever heard of. And yet at the same time, we have to say with equal force that their greatest need and our greatest need is not to be healed in our bodies. Our greatest need is also not to see signs and wonders. Maybe some of you want to see some signs and wonders. That would would really help you. But isn't it odd that... We can become so passionate about the desire to see signs and wonders. And when Jesus said to people that were asking for the exact same thing, you are a wicked generation that desires signs and wonders. Our greatest need is not to see signs and wonders. Our greatest need is also, again, if you're on that other extreme... Some of us are attracted to the miraculous. We're attracted to the signs and wonders. And some of us are attracted to thinking, that's all just a bunch of stuff. I'm over here. I just want to do the right thing. That's how I'm going to get blessed. I'm just going to obey. I'm just going to follow the rules. And the Lord's going to bless me. It's also not your greatest need to be perfectly obedient because you can't do that. Our greatest need is to know our Father. Our greatest need is to know our Father. Our greatest need is to get out of our natural state. Our natural state is distance from Him. It's separation from Him. It's to be dead spiritually. It's to be orphaned spiritually without hope, without God in this world. That is our greatest need. Our greatest need is the miracle of healing. It's the miracle of the new birth. It's the miracle of adoption. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us. In Romans chapter 8, another of Paul's letters, he says this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So you see, there, we, we haven't received the spirit of slavery. That is to say, we haven't been saved and then given a spirit of slavery just to make us do all this stuff. To put under us the, or put over us the bondage of the law again, to fall into fear, but we've been given a spirit of adoption. We talked about this a bit when we looked at the love of the Father. And we talked about how and we, the love of the Father is shown to us in that we have become the children of God. And Romans chapter 8 is even more specific than that. It's not that we have generally become children. There's a reason that it says sons and not sons and daughters. We have become sons in that we have received all of the blessings, all of the inheritance, all of the riches as if all of us were the firstborn sons. It's not trying to indicate some sort of gender discrimination and salvation. It's simply trying to say, whoever we are, male or female, we get the blessing as a son. We've been adopted. We've been adopted by his spirit. I've used this illustration before. Perhaps you've heard it. But in the United States, a president can pardon your sin, your crimes, president can't pardon your sin. He can pardon your crimes. But he can't adopt you. He doesn't. If you're a criminal, if you've done something terrible, you've robbed somebody, you've killed somebody, the president can actually pardon you from that. He can write a letter and give it to you, and the courts cannot hold your crime against you. But if you take that letter to the White House the next day, and you've got your picnic basket on your arm, and you want to go in there and have tea on the lawn what are they going to say to you at the gate? Go away. You're not welcome here. You're not a son. You've not been adopted into the family, as good or bad as that might sound to you, Um, but you've not been adopted into the family of the president. You've simply been pardoned. God in our salvation has not only pardoned us, he's not only taken our sin as far as the east is from the west away from us, he's not only pardoned, but he's adopted. He's thrown open the gates and he said, come home, and not only come home, but I've got a party for you. He's adopted us. He's adopted us through his spirit, and this reminds us what is the greatest work of the spirit. The spirit does miracles. The Spirit um, it does signs and wonders. We believe that, but what the Spirit is doing that for the purpose of is to help us know Jesus so that we can be adopted as sons of the Father. So we can have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ because it's on the basis of his death and resurrection on the cross that the Spirit then is able to, based on his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, take us to the Father and say, this is your Son. Well, the second banner that I told you about is that you can have fellowship with one another by the Spirit around Jesus Christ as brothers. So we can have fellowship with God through our adoption by the Spirit, and we can have fellowship with our brothers based on the Spirit of Christ that he has put inside of us. So a few things about this fellowship. Number one, this fellowship is inclusive. In 2 Corinthians, as Paul is writing this, he's he's writing this from Macedonia, probably. Philippi, Philippi. Thessalonica, we're not quite sure which, but probably somewhere in Macedonia. And he's writing to Corinth. Then, if you read 7, 8, and 9, you'll see that he's also talking about a church in Jerusalem that he's concerned about. He wants the Corinthians to remember their unity with him in the gospel. The reason that he presses against them so much in the book about following false teachers is that he wants them to remember the true teaching that he gave them so that they are unified, so that they can work together for the good of the churches in those places. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, we have the same spirit of faith, Corinthians. We have the same spirit of faith knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to think about is he's trying to get them to think about the reality that they need to stay centered on Christ, centered on the truth, the message of reconciliation, and as they do that, as they're going around the gravitational pull, the center of which is Christ, they're going to be drawn not only to him, but towards each other. There's going to be an inclusiveness to their fellowship because it's going to involve people that are even different from them, people in different places and people that are different from them. This is why, as a church, we cooperate with networks like the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. There's churches in that network that are very different from us, but they preach the same gospel. So we want to work together with them. We want to have an inclusivity to our fellowship because we believe it's the gospel that's the most important. That's why, with churches here in Dubai, we want to work together with churches that preach the same gospel that we do, so that the glory of the gospel can go forward in this city, not just from Redeemer Church, but from all of those who call upon the name of Christ. There should be that generosity of our approach. J.I. Packer, the theologian, says this, Christians should not settle for doing anything separately that they could in good conscience do together. Christians should not settle for doing anything separately that they can in good conscience do together. We want to look for those who are calling upon Christ and seek to encourage them and join with them and bless them. And it's one thing to think about churches. And I bring that up because that's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians, the unity that they have with churches in other places. But we can also say the same thing about our own gatherings. There ought to be an inclusivity to the fellowship that we experience with one another. I mentioned that we're so different. Many of us coming from such different backgrounds, not just ethnically, different church backgrounds, different family backgrounds, different job backgrounds. We have different ways of eating food, different ways of spending money, different ways of greeting each other on Fridays. And yet the Lord is calling us and saying, are you fellowshipping in the Spirit? Or are you fellowshipping based on something else? And if it's anything else and not the gospel, then we are not experiencing true fellowship, but something of our own making. So let our fellowship be inclusive. Let let us look for those who are calling upon Christ and experience the joy of fellowship with them that's provided by the Holy Spirit and the unity that he is affecting. So the fellowship is inclusive, and yet at the same time we have to say the fellowship is exclusive, right smack in the middle of 2 Corinthians, in chapter, six, in chapter 6, Paul gives a warning. And he gives this warning about something that's going to destroy the fellowship that they have in the Holy Spirit. Something that's, that's going to bring about unhealthy, unrighteousness in their fellowship. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now this verse is often used in the, in the context of dating and counseling people that are dating. People will come to us as pastors, and maybe they've come to you as, as friends and fellow members, and they say, I've got this New, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a person that my parents connected me with online, and, and we're talking, and, and we think we should get married. And we say, oh, that's great. That's phenomenal. Tell us about her. Oh, well, you know, she's from this place, and she's great. She's got a good job. She has the right complexion. Um, and she's not a believer. Well, the first question a pastor's going to ask is, well, have you considered that the Bible says you should not? be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You should not intentionally seek out partnership with someone who radically differs from you on the most important thing about you. So that is a good application of this verse. But it's not actually the context of what Paul was writing here in 2 Corinthians 6. He's not writing into a dating counseling context or situation. What he's writing about is relationships within the church. He's writing about what teachers do you have come in? What fellowship do you enjoy with one another? If your fellowship is not based around a desire to discern who is in the faith, who has the Holy Spirit, then you may be unintentionally fellowshipping and yoking yourself with unbelievers. This will ultimately lead not to fellowship, but to destruction. He makes this explicit. In chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Paul is not shy about seeking to have gospel clarity that leads to gospel allegiance. Because when there's gospel confusion, the gospel gets lost. So we need to examine our teachers. This is why we encourage you as a congregation to examine what we say as your pastors and teachers against the scriptures. Don't yoke yourself to a teacher who's an unbeliever, who doesn't believe in full faith and obedience what he is teaching you from the scripture as truth. This is also why as a church we we have the practice of church membership, This is not because we think that the members of Redeemer Church of Dubai are the only saved people in Dubai. And this is also not because we think that we're able even to fully and completely and 100% know who is a, a, a true believer and who is not. But we do take passages like this in 2 Corinthians. And we see that Paul is encouraging the church to try and discern, to seek to have some understanding of who among you is seeking to follow Jesus Christ with their life. Examine yourself. Don't yoke yourself with non-believers. And so that's why, as a church, we have a membership process where we simply try and help you understand, are you a believer? And if you're a believer, then we want to include you in our fellowship, because we want our fellowship to include as many people as possible in the Holy Spirit. So if you are not a member of this church, please know that our goal is is not just to have more members. Our goal is is not just to get get to a certain number so that we can feel better about ourselves. Our goal is there's no, there's no secret handshake or um, commitment of your salary that you have to give, or some sort of weird pledge that you have to give to the leadership, a tattoo that you have to mark your body with. That is not what our membership process is. We want to help you be obedient to 2 Corinthians 13 5. Examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith. Come join us in fellowship. So the fellowship that we have horizontally is both inclusive and exclusive. And lastly, my favorite, it's explosive. Isn't that a great word? I think that's my favorite point I've ever made in a sermon. Fellowship in the Holy Spirit is explosive. Here's what I mean by that. If you truly want to experience the Holy Spirit, If you truly want to see him at work, if you want to see miracles, if you want to see signs and wonders, then we need to be about the explosion of the church. You know, I mentioned Pentecost. Pentecost is that remarkable event. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, stay here in Jerusalem, don't Leave, wait until you receive power. When you receive the Holy Spirit in power, then you will go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they wait, they pray, and they receive the Holy Spirit. He comes in power. And then what happens is so remarkable. Because then what happens after they've just seen the apostles speaking in so many different languages and in this amazing display of the Holy Spirit, what do they do? Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 46 tells us, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people. And here's the explosion. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that that what happened there was actually not an arena filled with believers where crazy things were happening? That is not what the Holy Spirit did after Pentecost. What the Holy Spirit did after Pentecost was continue the miracle of saving people. And when he did that, he wasn't doing it in arenas full of people with preachers on the stage slapping the congregation so they had to fall down. He did that in homes as people gathered together, shared meals together, considered the apostles' teaching together, We call these community groups. We call these small groups. These were the ways that the early church saw the explosive, miraculous growth by the Holy Spirit. So my friends, I want to ask you here as we conclude, do you want to see the Spirit? Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit of God? If your answer is yes, then your next step is probably simply having someone over for dinner someone over for dinner and praying for that person, praying that God would not simply have them to enjoy the meal, but that a miracle would take place, that they would come to know the Savior. And friends, if you're here and you're, and you're not in Christ, you're not following Christ. When I'm talking about examining yourself, you're saying, "I know, I know that I'm not a believer. I know that I'm not in Christ. I don't believe the gospel. I have not looked to Christ for salvation." then there's a miracle that you can experience today. By repentance of sin and trust in Christ Jesus' name, you can receive the Holy Spirit, be sealed for eternity as God's Son. Those are the kind of miracles that we want to see. Let's pray together. Our Lord, what... What dangerous ground that we've been treading these last three weeks. To speak of you and your nature at length. Lord, there's so much opportunity for error. Father, I pray that what's been said would have been true to your word. Would have been right for consideration and for inspiring worship amongst these who have heard it. Lord, with glory go to Jesus Christ. Will your spirit continue in opening our eyes to see his glory and may we worship him. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.